0: You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au Take your seats and it'd be great to have that passage open in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. If you are here for the first time, I know uh, some of you are, we're in the last week this week in a 10-week series, um, which we've been doing really ever since Easter, looking at the gifts of the Spirit from uh, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. That's the three chapters in the Bible that most thoroughly explain Uh, the gifts of the Spirit for us. And so we have been just tracking through looking at particular gifts and then looking at some of the the biblical principles that Paul puts around the exercise of those gifts. And this week we get to the last little paragraph of those three chapters. Uh, And what I'm going to try and do is address what is a very controversial passage, but to do it fairly briefly so that we have as much time as possible to think about where God might be leading us next. Uh, This is not something that we close the book on today and then move on to something else. No, this is something that God is doing in and through this church. And I believe he wants us to continually be stirring up within within the family here, um, spiritual gifting for the good of the church. So... With that said, we are going to look at this final paragraph in chapter 14. And so just to frame this up for us, I want, us to, show you, I want to show you how we've arrived at this point. Just logically, where has Paul taken us? Uh, and, and to begin with, we go right the way back into chapter 1. We looked at this in the first three weeks, actually, uh, framing up this series. And in chapter 1, Paul just just praises this church in Corinth. And and we know, having read the whole book and, and both letters, we know that this church is struggling big time. We know that they have serious issues that Paul is going to address throughout these two letters. And yet he still begins with this great thanksgiving for the church in Corinth. and And I want you to highlight verse 4 to 7. Uh, just to see where he knows they are in, in respect to their giftedness. He says, I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I said from the beginning, that that is like a a church goal for us here, that we would be a a gathering of believers who would not lack any spiritual gift as we eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus. As As we look to his coming again, we are eagerly waiting for that day. Our whole kind of mindset, worldview, priorities are shaped around that fact, Jesus is coming. And as we, as we arrange our lives around that fact, we don't lack any spiritual gift. And then he goes on in and, and, and the very beginning of this series in chapter 12, the first verse of chapter 12, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be unaware. So this is the kind of mandate we have for this whole series. Paul doesn't want the church in Corinth to be unaware about spiritual gifts. He doesn't want us in Caroline Springs to be unaware when it comes to spiritual gifts. Now, the, the thing that he doesn't want them to be unaware of is not the presence of gifts, because we already know they're not lacking any spiritual gift. It's not the present. They're not, unaware. They're not ignorant of the presence of gifts. It's the purpose of the gifts that they're unaware of. They're not exercising them correctly. They're not using them for the purpose for which they were created. And the purpose that spiritual gifts are created for is in verse 7 of that same chapter. In chapter 12, verse 7, he says, A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for what? For the common good. So spiritual gifts are not this detached thing somewhere out in the universe that God sort of chucks down to us every now and then. No, they are God himself, a manifestation of God's spirit. So every believer has the spirit and a manifestation of that spirit is given to each person in the church for what? For the common good. Not for my good, not for the sake of my ego or my renown, but for the common good and so what I think the the Corinthians are unaware of is not the presence of the gifts but the purpose of the gifts and the purpose of the gifts are that they are given for the common good and you can so you can see in that that one verse two really important things that we've kept coming back to and something I want you to lock in your mind going forward spiritual gifts are given to all people right all Christians and they're given to all Christians for the common good And those two major threads of Paul's thought are picked up in this passage that we come to today. So verse 26, the first verse that we're looking at, he says, What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. Everything is to be done for building up. You see how those two things are expressed in that verse? When you come together, when you come together as the church family, when you come together for worship, each person has something to give. Each person has a hymn or teaching, a revelation, another tongue or an interpretation, and all of that is to be done for building up, that is for the common good, for edification, So whatever happens in this place going forward as far as the spiritual gifts go, whatever God might be pleased to do in our time together as we pray and ask God to to bless us with these gifts or maybe to fan into flame gifts that we have let go dormant, whatever the case, we need to know that these gifts are given to each person for the building up of the church, for the common good, for edification, That's our guiding principle. That's our compass as we move forward. And so because gifts are given for the building up, for the common good, therefore Paul addresses three things, three issues that are manifesting themselves in that church and will manifest themselves in our church if we're obedient in eagerly desiring spiritual gifts. So three things. I just want to address these two things. I'm not going to go deep into it. We could spend the rest of our lives here, okay? I want to get on to the, the next steps. But three things. So first thing, um, tongues. It's about the gift of tongues. We did a whole week on this last week. Um, so I'm going over some old ground, but it's, it's, we really need to address it because he addresses it. All right? So tongues, uh, he says there needs to be one at a time. They need to be interpreted. So that's verse 27 to 28. We'll come back to this, all right? This is what he says, if anyone speaks in another tongue, there are to be only two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, that person is to keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. All right, that's tongues. Prophecy is the next thing he addresses. So he says prophecy in verse 29 and following. He says two or three prophets should speak and the others should evaluate but if someone something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent for you can all prophesy one by one so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. Alright? Tongues and prophecy and then he says you know the Your favourite passage and mine. Women should remain silent, all right? Verse. (laughs) I tell you what, this is why most preachers don't preach through whole books of the Bible, all right? You're much better off just taking a pat, no, come up with your own idea and then just attach a Bible verse to it. That's the safest way to do it, all right? You preach through whole books of the Bible, you have to preach through really weird or uncomfortable things. All right, so here's here's, here's what he says. We'll get to this again. Women should remain silent. Verse 34 to 35, he says, Women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak. But are to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. All right, so tongues, prophecy, women. And these three things he addresses because of what he has already said. Everything is to be done in order to build up the church. So let's have a, a little closer look at those three things and, and then we'll get on to where we go from here. So first of all, th- what I'm trying to do is answer the question here, why is he giving these, these commands? Why is he giving these guidelines? Why is he framing up these kind of boundaries around tongues and prophecy and the role of women? Why is he doing that? Let's look at the, the first one here, the gift of tongues, all right? Remember, our guiding principle is that the gifts are given for edification. The gifts are given to build up the church, to strengthen the body of believers. So therefore, if that's the case, speaking in tongues needs to happen one at a time. Right? The story says that clearly in verse 27 to 28. It needs to happen one at a time. Why? Because if everyone speaks in tongues all at the same time, it's chaotic and there's no way that we can interpret those tongues that are being said. And so Paul has said elsewhere, remember in chapter 14, you might do that, you might be edified by that, but no one else is. You're edifying yourself by exercising this gift between you and God, but no one else is strengthened by it because we don't know what you're saying. And so if we say it all at once, there's no way of it being interpreted, so there's no building up of the church, no edification, no common good. It's exactly why he says it needs to be one at a time. That's why he says there needs to be an interpretation in verse 27. So we've made, again, you need to go back to last week to hear a thorough exposition of this whole idea of tongues. But the, the point is this. While you might be free to, to, to exercise your gift of tongue speech to your heart's content in private and be massively edified by that in your own relationship with God, as far as the public gathering goes, there needs, whenever there is a a tongue given, there needs to be an interpretation so that everyone can be encouraged. Notice he says in verse 27, um, whenever you come together, uh, sorry, verse 26, he, he anticipates that you have an interpretation before you get to the meeting whenever you come together each one has a hymn, a teaching a revelation another tongue or an interpretation so I think the idea is if you're going to share your tongue privately you already know that there's someone here either yourself or someone else who's able to interpret it why what's the foundation for all this again it's the fact that these gifts are given to encourage to build up for the common good so he says, verse 39 to 40, So then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. All right, so there's, there's the tongue issue, the prophecy issue issue is that, again, these prophets should speak one at a time, not all at once, otherwise we don't get anything out of it. It needs to be one at a time so that we can not interpret what they're saying but weigh what they're saying, so that we can weigh it, so that we can judge these prophecies. Why do we need to do that? Why is it important that we can judge prophecies? It's because, as we saw two weeks ago when we looked at prophecy, it's because prophecy is fallible. That's because even if I'm absolutely certain that, that this word I'm going to give to the church is from God and for this people, and it comes with a sense of weight and gravity and urgency, I know that what I'm about to say is fallible. I'm not reading from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5, right? My interpretation of what has been given to me by God is fallible, and my expression of it, my, 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 simply my speaking of it is fallible. Fallible. So we saw this again in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 20 to 21. He says, Paul again says, Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. That's just a basic fundamental policy when it comes to words of prophecy. Right? Don't despise them. Don't forbid them. Don't say, oh, that's what those charismatic people do. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. So that's why he says, these prophets can speak, and the others should evaluate. Now, this is really, this is really important that everyone knows that this is your role in this church. The interpretation of, of the tongue, that's a gift that God has to give certain people, Right? It's a supernatural gift. Someone is speaking something I have no idea what they're saying, but I have an interpretation of what they're saying which translates what is otherwise unintelligible into something intelligible. That's a supernatural gift given by God, the interpretation of tongues. When it comes to weighing prophecy, that's not a gift. That's a mandate for everyone in the church. All of us need to weigh what is being said prophetically. Right? And we need to do that using a couple of tools so someone gets up say i think god is speaking to this to the church or someone comes to you privately and says i think god wants you to know this here's how you need to weigh it at least in these ways probably more first of all you need to ask the question is this prophecy edifying We've already said all the gifts are given for the common good, building up, edification of the church. So, is this word that's purported to be given by as a gift from God, is it edifying? That's not the same thing as saying is it comfortable, or is it what I want to hear. Right? It might convict me. It might rebuke me. But ultimately that con- that conviction, that rebuke will lead me into godliness, right? Will lead me into repentance whatever. So, the question is, is this edifying? Is it is it good? If someone comes to you with a word of prophecy and it's just tearing you down and condemning you, you know that's not prophetic. That someone's just grumpy, all right? It needs to be edifying. Secondly, is it loving? Remember, Paul has said tongues, prophecy, all these miraculous gifts are worth nothing if love isn't motivating, enlivening, empowering them. Like chapter 13, the whole thing. If love isn't the motivation for this person sharing this thing with the church or with me personally, then it's just a clanging symbol. It's just irritating, annoying, should be ignored. To edification, love, and then ultimately and most assuredly, we need to test it against Scripture. Because we know for a fact God is not going to tell anyone anything that's contradictory to what he's already revealed in his word. Okay? Again, basic principle, policy, when it comes to prophecy. If someone comes to you and says, uh, I really feel like God is telling you to leave your wife, no, he's not. You can just say, no, he's not. (laughs) What God has joined together, let no one separate, right? So this is why we need to know our scriptures well because they're going to aid us in weighing. And, and ultimately, uh, though I'm talking to you individually about how to weigh these things, this is a community effort. This is something all the church is, is called to do. Like, right? Let, let him speak, let the prophet speak, let the others evaluate or weigh or judge. And again, the foundation for all of this so then, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy. Do not forbid speaking in other tongues, but everything is to be done decently and in order. I love what Paul says about his um, ministry of speaking to the churches through the book of Acts. He goes with these, these, these teachings of the gospel. Remember, they're not yet written down in the scriptures. We don't have the Old and New Testament to check them against. But what Paul loves to see is when people don't just swallow whole what he's saying, but check them against what they know about God. So you got this with the Bereans. Remember in Acts 17? We got that? He says, The people here in Berea were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, since they received the word with eagerness and examined the Scriptures, that is the the Old Testament, daily, to see if these things were so. So Paul loves it when people don't just swallow what he's got to say, but go back to the scriptures, check it against the scriptures. That's what he wants us to do. daily, right? All the time. So there you got tongues, you got prophecy, then we got this this bit about women remaining silent, all right? So let me let me read that again for us just so we're clear. He says the women should remain silent or be silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but to submit themselves as the law also says. If they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home since it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, I wrote down in my, when I was uh, studying for this series all those months ago I wrote down 14 different theories explaining what Paul means in those in that passage. Theories abound. No one is absolutely clear about what Paul means when he says this or what he's trying to communicate to the church, all right? So what I'm about to say is an interpretation, and I'm not 100% sure about it. I just I don't know 100%, with 100% certainty that that this is what Paul means when he says these things. Alright, so you need to weigh what you hear according to the scriptures, along with everything else you hear from anyone holding a microphone at the front of this church. Alright? So so here's here's where through my study, here's where I'm landing. I encourage you to go and, and check it out for yourself. First point: Paul saying women should remain silent in the churches. Can't be a blanket prohibition on women speaking in church. He can't mean women coming to church have to remain silent until they leave and then they can start talking again. It can't mean that. And here, here's the thing. I say it can't mean that not because as modern people we've moved beyond those archaic ways of thinking. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying we, we don't listen to this command and obey it because we've, we've evolved beyond that. We, like There are 10,000 things we believe as Christians that the rest of the culture has moved beyond, right? And we hold fast to them. We hold fast to the commands of God, irrespective of what the culture is doing around us. So whatever I'm saying here, it's not because we're so much more advanced than they were. I say this can't be a blanket command for women to remain silent because in this very book, in chapter 11, Paul encourages women to pray and to prophesy in the gathered church. Now, they can't do that silently. That would be silly, all right? That that doesn't make any sense. Now, whatever you think about the role of women in preaching, and we addressed this in 2017, in June or something, we did in this series where we were addressing tough questions, and I told you, I, through that, that series and study, I had changed my mind about this. I'd gone from thinking that women shouldn't preach to saying that women should, uh, and they should be encouraged to. So again, one's mind can be changed on these things. But whatever you think about women preaching in church, Paul definitely says they should pray and prophesy. So, and in this very book, it's not like that was in a book he wrote a while ago and then he's changed his mind. Like in this very letter, he has said, women pray, prophesy in the church. So he can't mean silent and remain silent always. You can see he uses the word silent twice in this very paragraph without meaning blanket silent forever, right? He says when, if there are multiple people to, to speak in tongues one at a time, others remain silent, prophecy, same thing. So he uses the word silent without meaning shut up forever. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. And he expects women to be speaking in the service. So that actually makes it harder to figure out what he's saying then, right? It makes it more complicated than it appears. Here's what I think he's saying. Again, not 100% sure, but I think the clue to what he's getting at comes in what he tells them that they should do, not in what they shouldn't, but in, in what they should do. So verse 35, I know you guys are checking out. Just stay with me for a second, right? We, we'll, get, we'll get past this and we'll move on to the sunset. All right, so verse 35, he says to the women, if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, right? So that, that's the big clue. If they want to learn something, let them ask their husbands at home. So here's the issue. Women want to learn. Is that good or bad? Well, that's good, all right? So that's good. The question is how they're going about this learning. And he says, if they want to learn something, they should ask their own husbands at home. That's a very specific way of wording it. They should ask their own husbands at home. So here's where I think he's coming from. I think the issue in Corinth is that in the the First century culture that they were doing ministry in, gathering in, doing church in, it was really inappropriate for a woman to ask another woman's husband something in public. It seems quite clear that that was the case, from what we know from just learning history of the time. So there's, there's one quote I want to share with you from Chris Forbes, and this is what he writes looking at the first century context. He said that there existed a strong prejudice against women speaking in public and especially against their speaking to other women's husbands. In a society with strictly defined gender and social roles, such behaviour was treated as totally inappropriate. And so if that's true, then it would make sense that Paul is giving this strong command for women not to do anything that was seen as outrageous in the gathered congregation. Why? Because he wants everything to be done decently and in order, verse 40. Because, verse 33, God is not a God of disorder but of peace. Right? And so if, if it's true that the context of the time saw this as a really inappropriate thing that would disrupt an otherwise peaceful gathering, then it makes sense that he would put this prohibition on women to, rather than doing this in the service... And rather than asking other women's husbands to ask their own husbands at home, outside of the gathering. So if all of that is true, and I'm fairly sure it is, but not 100%, if it's true, then that would be a culturally bound prohibition that wouldn't apply to us today. Why does it not apply to us today? Because David Veal doesn't care if Ali Veal asks me a question in public. It's just not a thing for us. Right? No, no one cares. And so it's not, if it happens, it's not disruptive. It's not contra to what Paul wants for the gathered church. And so in that case, it doesn't apply to us because it's just not our thing. It just doesn't, it's just not a thing for us. Now, while that the particulars of the prohibition don't apply to us, the general rule does, don't do anything that causes a big disruption in church, right? You just add in whatever it would be for us that would be really inappropriate. I'll tell you what would be inappropriate for us. I'll tell you a story. This became really clear to me this last Sunday. I came to the Dinka Language congregation to their meeting last Sunday. They had a visiting bishop from South Sudan and it was a big deal and and I, was, I got seated. In fact, I displaced the, the man that was sitting here. I was brought to the front. He was told to go somewhere else, and I was sat here, right? So first culturally weird thing to happen to me in that service, the first of many, right? And then while the, the bishop's up here, oh, first of all, I'm not wearing robes. I'm not, I don't have a collar. To them, I'm the weird one, all right? That's really weird. You, you say that you're a priest and you're not wearing clerical robes. Weird, right? So they think I'm weird. And then I think they're weird because while he's preaching, all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. These people are having a conversation over here. These women back here are singing a song. There's a guy standing in front of him with a camera with a massive spotlight, like blinding him. And then there's two or three women walking around taking photos of the congregation. All while he's preaching, as well as a number of people just walking in and out kitchen, doing, well, like just chaos right and uh, to me if I'm writing a letter to their congregation I'm like guys just sit down <laughs> but to them no problem, like no one is struggling the slightest with what's going on, it's perfectly normal and so for me to take my my cultural norms and put a prohibition on them, alright, sit down stop walking, stop singing stop talking, stop taking photos of everyone, right, if I was to say that, it would, the, the prohibition wouldn't apply to their church because it's just not part of my culture that's what I'm kind of saying is going on here you decide for yourself I've spent way too much time on that, alright what I really want to get to is is where we go from here Okay, where we go from here is really important because if where we go from here is just to go, all right, spiritual gifts done, and tick that off the list and then move on to something else, we failed. We failed because our mandate in spending 10 weeks here was to ask God to be reorientating us dramatically, to be more in step with his spirit and what he wants for our church, to be more aware of and available to the working of his spirit in us for the good of the church. As well as that, we have expressed commands from God that we've looked at over and again that cannot be ignored, that are not culturally bound. Commands like eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. That's a command given by God that we ignore to our peril. And so where do we go from here is a really important question. How do we continue to stir up the gifts of God in this people for our good? So if, you've, if you are a good, good person and read through the study guide that we put out, you'll notice that it finishes with a kind of a summary and then some next steps. So that's basically what I go, want to go through here. Then we're going to sing, and then we're just going to have a, a time of prayer asking God to do all of this stuff that he's been beginning to do over these past couple of months all right so first of all we're going to look at four statements that i hope kind of summarize a lot of what we've been saying over the last few months all right four statements to summarize number 1 and if you've just been tuned out the whole time i understand but please listen to this all right please take note of this I'm going to put these in our Facebook group so you can uh, spend some more time thinking about them. Number one, every believer, both male and female, young and old, is gifted to minister in the church. Pastors, priests, and professional religious people, people with robes and collars, or people with button-up shirts and a microphone, whoever they are, they are not more qualified to receive or exercise spiritual gifts. Paul says a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. That's number one. Number two spiritual gifts are designed primarily for the building up of the church, they ought to move you outside of yourself to serve others for the common good. Number three, spiritual gifts exercised without love are worse than useless. They are irritating and offensive, a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Gifts will cease when Jesus returns, but love lasts forever. Number four, tongues and prophecy are more susceptible to abuse and some of us have suffered as a result However, the antidote to these dangers is not to despise the gifts, but to properly exercise them in conformity to God's word. All right. So, where do we go from now? What are our next steps? I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly. But I do believe that God is wanting to do Great work in this church, in us, for our good and for his glory. I do believe that God this morning is calling on some of you to, for the first time, express a desire for spiritual gifts. Maybe for the first time. For the first time, to obey that commandment, eagerly desire spiritual gifts And I believe that for some of you, he wants to rekindle gifts that have laid dormant for too long. Some of you who who is gifted to minister in the church and you have neglected it, maybe out of fear, maybe out of burnout, maybe because you were told those gifts don't exist anymore. I don't know what it is, but I do believe that some people have like like a, just a flicker of a flame, or maybe it's just coals, or um, just like a smoldering place where a flame once was. And I believe he wants to reignite that. I believe that he's calling us to, oh man, to throw ourselves into prayer. I believe he's, he's calling us to throw ourselves into prayer, like body and soul into prayer, like we can get rid of everything else we do as long as we pray and devote ourselves to prayer. You're going to hear more about an opportunity to do that uh, at the end of the month a little later on. I believe he wants to do a lot of things, even this morning as we gather together. So let me just give you a few tips. All right. Seven tips sounds a bit pretentious. I don't know. Seven seven encouragements for growing in the gifts. Okay, here we go. First of all, acknowledge from the outset that you can do nothing to force God's hand. Alright? God is the giver, you are the receiver. You don't take his hand and force him to right. You do nothing. To force God's hand, whether or not God gives you a particular gift is entirely dependent on his will. I shared with you last week that I've prayed multiple times to receive a gift of tongues. I've never received it. Why? Because I'm not the giver. God is, and I can do nothing to force his hand. If God doesn't choose to bless you with a particular gift, rest assured. Read that, rest assured. He has other equally important plans for you to help build up the church. All right, let's keep moving. What's the next one? Eagerly desire all of the gifts, exclamation mark. Make growing in the gifts a consistent focus of your prayers. That's a good test. Do you really want to be gifted by God? I think a test is, are you still praying about this in six months' time? Make it a consistent focus of your prayers. Try fasting prayer as a way of demonstrating your hunger for God's blessing. Cry out to him for a manifestation of his spirit. (sighs) Next one. Check your motivation. Be sure that your desire for gifting is your love and concern for the welfare of others, not the attention or affection that spiritual gifting might bring you. Man, that's a dangerous one. All right, next. Learn from others. Yeah. Seek people out who are already operating in the gifts. Ask them questions. Listen to their stories. Learn from their mistakes. Learn from their mistakes. Learn from their mistakes and be encouraged by their testimonies. This is a community project, my friends. Next one. Regarding prophetic words for individuals, all right, so you believe that God has given you a word to communicate to an individual, I've seen that in this church used for profound good, like glory to God, hallelujah, good, that wouldn't have come, presumably, if that person hadn't been confident to share the word that God had given them, all right, so Regarding prophetic words for individuals, if you think God has revealed something to you for the edification of another believer, first share it in confidence with trusted and mature Christian friends who can help you weigh the message. I think that's just a good just a good policy to have, all right? Now, next one is equally important. Be willing to risk being wrong. Step out in faith and humility. I may have this wrong, but I think God may have put something on my heart for you. There's humility in that statement. Resist the temptation to say, thus saith the Lord, or this is the will of God for your life. Remember, we know in part and we prophesy in part. I heard a story of a friend of a friend in the UK. They have an Anglican church which is quite charismatic and encourages the The gifts they also have a a time each week for sharing experiences of exercising gifts and so my friend who's from america was in this church in england he was there at the week where a lady got up and said i want to share my experience with you of sharing a word of prophecy a word of knowledge specifically to someone on the train i just i saw this person on the train i really felt like god had a word for me to share with them. It was quite specific about a situation they were in. And so I went and I just shared it with them. And she said, it was completely wrong. Like, not even a little bit right in any way. Completely off base, totally wrong. And this American friend of mine said, the whole congregation clapped and applauded. And he was like, what is going on here? And he went to the vicar and said, why... Did everyone applaud when someone shared a testimony about failure? And he said, because we want to encourage courage, not success. Right? We want to encourage stepping out in faith, not merely spotlight all the good things that come of it, all the successes. I thought that was really important. Why? Because it reassures people that we can get things wrong. That's okay. That's part of what we do. We apply exactly the same logic to anyone who comes and preaches, right? We know that they might not nail every single point perfectly, and yet we still receive it with joy, and we still encourage them for stepping out and blessing us with that ministry. Got anything else? I think there's one more. Yes. Let's finish on the the most important thing. Immerse yourself in God's word. If you're going to obey God and eagerly desire spiritual gifts and then step out into ministry and exercise them for the good of the church, then you're going to need to be tethered very strongly to God's word. Immerse yourself in it. Scripture is our final authority on all things. God will never reveal anything to anyone that is inconsistent with his word, his character or his ways. We must immerse ourselves in God's word. I want to leave you with something that doesn't come from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. Not from 1 Corinthians at all. I want to leave you with something that Paul says to his little protege, to his son in the faith, to Timothy. And I want this to lead us into praise and also to prayer. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 1. Paul to Timothy, he says, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God. That is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. That's a good summary of everything that we have said. God is calling on each one of us to kindle and rekindle the gifts that He has given us for the common good. And to do that not out of fear, not to let fear discourage us or dissuade us, but to remember that the spirit we have is one of power and love and sound judgment. What a summary of everything that we've said. And what an encouragement to us now as we respond. Let me pray for us. Father, I do believe that you want to do amazing things among us. Extraordinary things, miraculous things, things that only you could do. I believe you want want us to witness you manifesting your power among us. That we would be strengthened, encouraged, edified. That those outside of the church, even, even unbelievers, would come in and fall down on their face and say, God is truly among you. I know, Lord, that there are all kinds of reasons why we might be fearful to open ourselves up to being gifted by you. Some of us have scars from previous experiences that were very hurtful. And some of us have been burned down to nothing as we exercised our gifts in a church that didn't nurture or nourish us. And some of us are just plain scared. Some of us are afraid of what you might do if we surrender ourselves to you. And so I pray now that we would remember that you are a good Father who gives good gifts, that you know us better than we know ourselves. And that if we ask for fish or bread, you will not give us a snake or a stone. I pray that we would know what Timothy was told by Paul. That we would know it for sure. That we have not been given a spirit of fear. But of power and love and sound judgment. as we move now into a time of praise and a time of prayer and really a time of surrendering ourselves to you and asking that you would move among us I pray that you would that you would do all that you want to do in this place, that you would remove every boundary, that you would remove every barrier every obstacle that you would have your way with us